Really glad you're here today, and I know that you heard a, a few announcements from Joe this morning. A couple more things I want to draw to your attention. And the first one, uh, men, this is for you. It's in your bulletin. Um, specifically, men's study starts up in a couple weeks, so look inside the bulletin and look at the date. Enter that into your phone if you're going to be there. You, you want to get more information, you can get that from Rich Bruce, and we'll give you more details as it approaches, but it's about two weeks out. And then um, two tables in the back I want to draw your attention to it for after the service. And one of them is being uh, manned by Bruce and Lynn Block. And we've been participating as a church with Stepping Stones Foundation for a few years now. Uh, Bruce and Lynn took it upon themselves to engage with a school system here in the Lansing area. It's Sheridan Road Schools. And it's a school system that has a lot of children in it who are from war-torn countries. Um, Many of them are refugees. Some of them are coming just because they were under political oppression or their parents are being persecuted. But for whatever reason, the children ended up in the Sheridan Road School District. And so Bruce and Lynn and their team each year take it upon themselves to go and read books to the children in the school. Now, mind you, a lot of these children are coming from homes where they don't have reading material and they don't have books. But the school administration is willing to allow them to come in and they specifically have chosen books that are very moral in nature and draw out great questions. And so the school has allowed them to come in and read to them about six times a year. Well, we have the books on the back table and they're $7 a piece or there's three of them for $20. And essentially what you're doing, if you hand over a $20 bill or $7, you're buying the book, but it's not going home with you. It's, it's gonna go with Bruce and Lynn and their team to the school. And they're gonna have opportunity to read to the children, to draw them into conversation, expose them to moral dialogue, and then the kids get to take the book home. So visit with them after the service if you're interested in that and participating. And the other thing is this. Ladies, I'd love for you to reach into the bulletin and pull out this insert. It's called the Perfect Blend. And my wife will be back at that table along with her team from Women's Ministry. This Tuesday night is a launch of the Perfect Blend. And this is an opportunity for you ladies to get to meet other ladies here at New Hope. You might be brand new or perhaps you go to the 11 and some of your friends go to the 9 and you don't get to cross each other's paths. This Tuesday night is a chance for you to connect with each other. You'll get to learn about what studies are coming up this fall. You'll get to have some coffee together and and engage in some conversation. So pay attention to this particular insert and you'll have an opportunity to talk with them after the service at that table back there. I would like to pray with you, um, but before we do that, before we step into the text, I'm going to ask you to pray about two things in specific. Um, we're growing as a church, obviously, and, and we're, we're bigger than we were a year ago, but we're never going to get to the point where we're too big that we're not still family, right, church? So we want to pray for each other. Well, a week ago, some of you woke up to the news of the terrible fire in California on the boat that took place off the coast of Southern California. Um, one of the divers on that boat was related to Heather Sodden. Actually, um, the Sodden family attends here. and Chris and Heather Sodden um, are, are dear to us, and it's Heather's sister that was killed in that fire. And so we want to be praying for the Sodden family. So specifically, I'm going to ask you to do that. And then also, um, I'm going to ask you to pray for my brother, Mike. Um, Friday night, my sister-in-law, Pam, passed away, and she'd been battling cancer for seven years, and it was the end to a very long battle. Um, She's a solid believer in Jesus. They have a great church around them, but grieving is real, right, church? Very real. And so that's what they're going through right now. 
So I'm going to ask you to pray for the Sodden's family and for my brother Mike and his family and his children. And let's step into prayer together. Lord God, I ask, first of all, that as we open our hearts to your word this morning, that you'll put us in that place to be reminded once again how powerful you are and the great length you went to to rescue us, that you did this for us. And when we're tempted to believe you're not on our side, remind us again, Father, how much you are So open up your word, illuminate our minds, allow us to understand, to really process how it applies to us. God, I ask specifically for the Sodden family, I ask that you would be especially close to Heather in the loss of her sister. God, let the the witness of Jesus carry forth strongly in the midst of this tragedy. And I also lift up my brother Mike and his family and ask that you'd be near to them. Strengthen them in this time. I, I know the trauma is real. And Father, I know as much as they're convinced and aware that Pam is with you now in eternity, that the grieving is intense. So I pray that you'd be close to them and comfort them. For all of us, God, I ask that you would remind us now why we gather together, why we take time to examine your word. And it's because we follow a king who's worthy. His name is Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. So I want to do something for you that was taught to me in Bible college. I was taught that Scripture speaks to Scripture. Verses in the Bible speak to other verses in the Bible, and it's unique in all the world for that reason. There's things within the Bible that reinforce other things, and I'm going to give you an example this morning from two of the most beautiful words that I think I have ever seen, and you can push back if you want to, catch me after the service and say, I know, I think these two are more beautiful, but let me show you the two that I think are most beautiful. It comes from this passage in Luke 22:20. Jesus is speaking, and this is a direct quote from him, and he says, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And the two words I want to focus in on with you this morning are for you. It was done for you. So we want to be very specific in recognizing that what we're about to talk about is this is for me. When you pick up the elements of the communion table this morning, it's for you. Jesus did this for us. Now, two weeks ago, we began on this journey for about a three-week journey. We're going to be talking about who this one Jesus is, and we called the series The Name. And what it's doing, if you're brand new to New Hope, this will really help you. In three weeks, we're stepping into a new study on the parables, which are the stories that Jesus told, and it's going to be a long study. But we want to understand this one who's telling the stories. Who is this one that's speaking with a name that's above every name? Who is this one? Because if Jesus isn't the one we think he is, nothing else matters. So what we discovered two weeks ago in John 1.1 when it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, it's talking about God the Son becoming Jesus the man. And if that's not true, nothing matters in terms of eternity. We might as well leave here this morning and not gather together. We might as well not have built this building if that element's not true. But because it is true, that truth brings us to this point I want to study with you this morning. 
So if you have a Bible, go to Philippians chapter 2 or Hebrews chapter 2. You're going to be in both this morning. You're going to see how Scripture speaks to Scripture. Maybe you have it on your phone or maybe you have it on your tablet. Uh, Perhaps you just want to read it along. It's up on the screen. You'll see that in just a moment. But if you have your Bible, I really encourage you to open your Bible. Open up your notes this morning. You're going to want to take notes. I had individuals come to me after the 9 o'clock service who said, wow, um, okay, I'd like to do that over again. I don't know if they're back in here in this service so they could do it over again. But the reality is this is going to feel intense, but it's very digestible. And I just want you to write down the things that you're seeing, the way that God's speaking to your heart. So let's start in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6. It says this, Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. So this one that we've been talking about, this one that has the name above every name, according to what you just read here, he existed before time. And he existed in the form of God, according to what we just saw. He existed in the form of God, but he did not regard equality with God, something to be grasped. Now, that truth that you just read, maybe you're looking at it in your own Bible right now, that truth sets biblical Christianity apart from all world religions. It sets it apart from all cults. Because what the Bible is doing is the Bible is laying claim to the fact that Jesus is God. And if you believe Jesus is God this morning, say amen. Now, I know not everybody's convinced of that, and so I want to help you process why the Bible says that this morning. You're going to see it come out. Now, it is not accurate to say that he relinquished being God in order to become Jesus. That would be an inaccurate statement. The form of God cannot be relinquished. In other words, God can't stop being God. God has to be God, so that's why you find Paul writing in Colossians 2.9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. So still God, God the Son becomes Jesus the man, but he can't stop being God. But follow this, he had to empty himself. He had to empty himself in order to take on the form of Jesus the man. Well, how do we understand that? Well, one of the ways that we understand it is that he had to empty himself of the fullness of divine glory because if he had shown up here in the fullness of divine glory, it would have incinerated everyone. He couldn't exist in God's presence without being made holy by Jesus. And if he had shown up here and the planet was just filled with sinners, it would have incinerated. How do I know that? Well, you only have to think back to the book of Exodus. Moses is out on Mount Sinai. He has the nation of Israel around him. And God says to Moses, even though they've been sanctified, even though they've set themselves apart, even though they've been made holy, do not let them come into my presence, Moses. Don't let them even touch the mountain, for they will perish. For Jesus to show up here in the full form of divine glory, it would have had consequences. So that's one of the reasons. So let's understand this taking on the form of man. In your notes this morning, perhaps you've already seen some of the Greek words on the side there. Here's the very first one that I want to put up on the screen for you. It's the word lumbano. And lumbano is talking about taking on or getting a hold of. Now, we think in the English phraseology of taking something, taking possession of it. That's kind of the thought. But follow it out with the Greek language here, to get a hold of. 
So we're not talking about exchanging something for something else. We're not talking about like trading in a used car and getting a new car. That's wrong. That's not the way we should process this. Lombano actually has this thought that he added to himself. So he's God, but he adds to himself the form of man, and he does that for our benefit. Now let's just pause for a moment, hit the pause button. How great is just that, that God would condescend, and I mean this in a positive way, that he would condescend to planet Earth to become one of us. We're talking about the condescension of God. It's very much a theological term. Dr. Paul Rees said it this way, look with me on the screen. Don't forget that in all this wide universe and in all the dim reaches of history, there has never been such a demonstration of self-effacing humility as when the Son of God in sheer grace descended to this planet. You talk about grace, you talk about amazing grace, you're looking at it in Philippians chapter 2. It's not just the grace of the cross that he died for your sins, it's the grace that begins with him taking on the form of man. So we begin with this perspective, and this is so important that we get it down, it's so profound and so weighty. And this is where most individuals who were in the 9 o'clock service said, man, I need to drink that in again. All of the interactions of God with the things that he created, all of God's interactions with the things that he created is a condescension, is a humbling of himself. It's an essential truth of the Bible. He humbles himself even to look on the angels. You wanna get a proper image of God when you pray next time? Think in terms of what we're told in Psalm 113.5. Look with me on the screen at this. Who is like the Lord our God? who is enthroned on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. But what's in heaven? The angels. And yet there's no separation between God and the angels because of sin. The holy angels are in his presence. They're not the fallen angels, they're the holy angels. And there's no separation, yet God has to humble himself even to look upon them. They're pure. They have no sin. There's no barrier of impurity. But he's infinitely above all that he has created. So all contact is of the higher with the lower, of the greater with the lesser. So for God to have dealings with a fallen creation... That's a condescension on a scale we can't begin to imagine. It's so great that we're told the angels long to look into it. They want a better understanding of it. Look with me on the screen, 1 Peter 1.12. These things which have now been announced to you, we're talking about the gospel, these things which have been announced to you, things into which the angels long to look. It means they want to get a clearer understanding. So if we accept that beginning premise that God humbled himself and became Jesus, logically you're gonna say, why? Especially if you're new to church. Like, why would he do that? So that should be telling you right away, the chasm between you and God is so enormous that unless he did that, there's no hope. Nothing less than that can restore us. So the answer to why would he do that? Because there was no other option. He had to do that. In other words, you can't earn your way to God. You can't make yourself good enough. 
God has to take the action. God has to take the step. So here's a deeper component. If you think we haven't gone deep enough yet, follow me on this. And, and if you find your mind wandering, just stop and pray and say, God, would you keep me focused on this? I, I don't wanna lose this. Here's a deeper thought. What did that condescension allow? If there's a condescension and God the Father and God the Son in agreement made Jesus come as a man, God the Son becomes Jesus the man, what did that allow? Well, that's not quickly answered, but it is incredibly important because only God could carry this out. God and God alone could do these specific actions. What actions? Let me show you in verse 14 of Hebrews chapter two. So if you were in Philippians two, now flip your Bible over to Hebrews chapter two. You'll also see it on the screen. Hebrews chapter two and verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Now, if that's not enough to process, go to verse 17, keep going. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That clears it up, right? It, that causes you to stop and say, what in the world did I just read? What, what is that saying? Well, it's an insight, but it's a complex insight, and so I need to break it down for you in the most basic terms. Let me show you what these specific actions are that Jesus carried out. Here, look with me on the screen at verse 14, 15, and 17. In verse 14, you saw that he rendered powerless him who had the power of death. Who is that? Well, that's Satan. Ever since the fall of man, ever since the rebellion in the garden, we've been held in bondage. Fear of death, the Bible calls it. So Jesus came to take the teeth out of that monster because what is the bondage that we've been held in? Verse 15 says, to free those who through the fear of death have been subject to slavery. What do we know about slaves? Slaves have no control over their destiny. It doesn't matter how far back you go in time, thousands of years, slaves could never determine even what they got to do tomorrow. So slaves had to be freed, freed from what? Freed from their bondage to death. Are you afraid of death? Are you afraid of what's on the other side? Do you come this morning with a fear of death. I know believers in Christ who have a fear of death. Maybe you find yourself in a place where you're not even yet a believer and you find yourself absolutely afraid of death. Well, the Bible says that's common. People have a fear of death, but Jesus came to free you from the fear of death. We'll develop that thought in just a moment. Here's the last one, verse 17, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Uh, propitiation is a big $10 word that essentially means he paid the price to be a sacrifice because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, right church? Romans 3.23, you see this verse up on the screen, Romans 3.23, all have sinned, we all come short of the glory of God, there's no exception, we're all the same, we're on the same playing field, none of us are any better, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
So now we understand Jesus had to become like us. He had to empty himself, not for his benefit as though he couldn't understand us unless he did. He's omniscient. He's God. Of course he understands us. It's not for his benefit, but he had to because only he and he alone could carry out these specific actions. Here's these three actions again. Look at me one more time on the screen. Satan had to be defeated. He had to do that. That's verse 14. He had to free his children from bondage. We've been chained as slaves. And these are the reasons you lift the cup this morning and you lift the bread and celebrate what Jesus did because he also made a blood covenant. That's what you're about to celebrate because nothing less than the shed blood of God can wash away my sins. So when he says, I did this for you, this is what he's talking about. Now, that was Hebrews 2, and I told you we're weaving Scripture to Scripture because Scripture speaks to Scripture. We've done Hebrews 2, Philippians 2. Now, let's go back to Philippians 2 one more time. It says this, verse 6, Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. So let's just bear down on a few words here. Look at this phrase, although he existed in the form of God. Rehearse what you already know. Just refresh yourself on this. Although God, although existing eternally in eternity past, he steps down from the lofty position where he exists as God. And notice this, before, during, and after, he's still fully and eternally God. It's unalterable. God can't stop being God. So the form of God, verse 6, just bear down in those four words, the form of God, the word form is morphe. You know it from the English world, we use the word morph. This is where it comes from. And the Greek word actually means an outward manifestation of an inner reality, the idea of adjustment. So The big idea is this, from all eternity, in eternity past, Jesus pre-exists as God, equal with God in every way, and so for him to change in any degree, even temporarily, is a diminishing, is a condescension. It demands a descent to be among us, and the Creator takes the form of the created. Why? Verse 6 because of this, because he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Praise God for that. That's the grace of God. That's Jesus saying, I'm willing to give it up for those whom I love. I want you to hear it this way. Jesus did not hold on to his rights and his entitlements, and he expects us to be like him. Christ Jesus, who has inhabited and indwells you through the power of the Holy Spirit, says, you should be striving to be like me. And I didn't hold on to my rights. I didn't hold on to my entitlements, even though he was challenged to take back his entitlements. When did that happen? Well, the 40 days in the wilderness and at the cross while he's hanging on the cross. Just let me clarify that for you. The 40 days in the wilderness, what did Satan do? He brought every single temptation he possibly could. He brought power wealth, glory, honor, brought it all before Jesus and said, come on, take back your entitlements. Those things belong to you. What did he do at the cross? Well, those individuals who were watching Jesus on the cross, they said, 
If you're really the son of God, bring yourself down off the cross. Then we'll believe you. See, he's constantly being challenged to take back his entitlements, but he never used his power for his personal advantage. Why? Because it was not a thing to be grasped. And that very choice set the carnation, incarnation in motion. We're talking about the Christmas story, that the word would become flesh and dwell among us. Rather than demand his privilege, he submits to the plan of redemption, and he did it for me. I want you to say that together with me on three. Let's say for me on three. One, two, three. For me. That's so important to remember as you pick up the cup. Because he said, I did this for you. Now, now check this. God gave him an escape clause. Did you know that? At any time, he could have called and asked for a legion of angels, 12 legions of angels, he said to Peter. Did you not know, Peter? Remember this in the garden? Peter pulls out a sword, cuts off the guard's ear. Jesus says, put away your sword, Peter. Do you not know that at any moment I can call my father and ask for more than 12 legions of angels? They would destroy the world and set me free. But even having an escape clause, he never exercised it. Why? Because that would thwart the plan. That's really important that you get this contrast down. So although he has the power to make bread, he doesn't. So Satan comes to him 40 days in the wilderness. He's fasted for 40 days. And Satan says, if you're really the son of God, command that these stones be made into bread because I know you're really hungry. Doesn't that sound good, Jesus? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds by the mouth of God. Yet the same Jesus finds himself on a beach making bread for 5,000 people just by the command of his word. See, he never exercised his abilities for himself. He did it for us. So he didn't want to alter the plan, but rather he emptied himself. So verse 7, just those three words, he emptied himself. So although he's absolutely God, he empties himself of all his privileges, of all his entitlements. Jesus empties himself of every trace of his privilege. Now keep in mind, he surrendered the privilege, but not the deity. Can't stop being God. He's still God. If he wasn't, he couldn't die for your sins. Dr. Lenski said it this way, even in the midst of his death, he had to be the mighty God in order by his death to conquer death. Now, we're just about ready to come forward and pick up the cups, or maybe you're going to go to the back tables. I'll talk to you about that in a minute. But I want you to take these five things out the door with you. Probably you've already read forward in your notes. Maybe you've already seen it written down, but just watch these develop over the screen. This is what Jesus did for you. He emptied himself of some specific things. Look at me, number one. He denied himself of his glory. Just drink this in for a moment. The one who has existed for eternity has had angels praising and glorifying him for eternity. And he denies himself of that to come here. He denies himself of the brilliance of heaven. Everything that Jesus is is in unapproachable light in eternity. And yet he denies himself of that. Number two, he denies himself of his independent authority. That's clearly taught throughout the Bible. Look at some of the things that he said. John 5.30, I can do nothing of my own initiative. 
Really? You're God the Son. But he surrendered it all. Or how about this one from John 6, 38? I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Here's the third one. He denied himself the exercise of his attributes. Still omniscient, still omnipotent, but doesn't exercise those capacities. Once in a while, he uses them for the purpose of teaching people, but he uses them very selectively. Number four, he denied himself his eternal riches. It says this in 2 Corinthians 8, for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. So he's not just given up earth's riches. That's why Satan offered him the wealth of earth. He's not just given that up. He's given up the wealth of heaven where God uses gold for concrete. You ever stop to think about that? Can you imagine, church, what we use for asphalt out there in the parking lot where you put your car today? Can you imagine showing up and seeing the parking lot paved with gold? Now, that would make the city of Lansing talk, wouldn't it? God's got so much gold that he uses it for concrete. People walk on streets of gold, and yet Jesus gives that up. But here's what I think is probably the biggest one. I'm especially mindful because of my brother's wife passing Friday night. I don't know until I stand where Pam stands in this moment, I don't know that I'm really going to appreciate this fifth one. I'll bet the same is true for you. This fifth one is that he gave up the face-to-face relationship with the Father. Even to the point of the Father turning from him. That's why people are so confused about the statement that Jesus made from the cross. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know the story of Jesus sweating great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. It wasn't because of the physical torture that awaited him, although that was intense. But taking on the sin of the world, causing the separation between God the Father and God the Son. How extraordinary that he would bear our sin and the complete separation as a result of it. So verse 7 ends this way, being made in the likeness of men. What we're talking about is the miracle of the virgin birth. He became so exactly like us that even his own brothers and sisters couldn't tell. They wanted to lock him up. Mary was clued in. His father Joseph was clued in. They knew what was going on. Some people in the area knew what was going on, but even his own family, he really didn't know until later, until after the resurrection. So that means all the limitations that you suffer with because of a fallen planet, the aches and pains, the sicknesses that you endure, Jesus felt it all to the degree that he made life, yet it resulted in him being subjected to physical death. He made life, and yet he's the one who's going to die on the cross so that he could obliterate the very thing that you fear most. And that loops us back around to Hebrews chapter 2 to end this. Hebrews 2.14, one more time. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. 
I want to bear down on three words in verse 14. He might destroy. And it comes specifically from this Greek word. We're talking about something that's rendered inoperative. When the Bible uses the word destroy, it means something even more so than what you're thinking. It means absolutely to obliterate. So if you're looking in your notes, you see the word kartageo. It's the last Greek word this morning. And it's talking about rendering something completely useless, making it void. Now, let's translate that because I just read you the King James Version. Let's translate that over to the Bible that we typically teach from here at New Hope, which is the New American Standard Version, NASB. Look at the NASB up on the screen, Hebrews 2.14. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. There's only one way to render Satan inoperative. There's only one way to make Satan powerless. And that's to take his weapon. And what's his weapon? We're being told right here. His weapon is death, eternal death, the freaking king of terror. What's waiting for me on the other side? And Jesus came and took that. And that's why you find him in the book of Revelation speaking to John on the island of Patmos, Revelation 1.18. Look at me on the screen. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death. I have the keys of death and hell. See, if you have a weapon that's more powerful than your enemy's weapon, your enemy's weapon is rendered powerless, useless. Just think of the comparison of a rowboat against a United States Navy destroyer. Who's going to win that battle? Well, you know, it's the destroyer every single time. Well, our weapon, if you'll forgive the weak analogy, and you transfer it over to the king of kings, our weapon is the king of kings. He's the one who fights for you, New Hope. He's the one who goes to battle for you, and he came to annihilate the enemy. There were no peace talks whatsoever. There were no negotiations with Satan. Satan was destroyed because Jesus descended from heaven for victory not for peace talks. He went into death, he went through death, and he came out the other side. So Jesus can say to us in John 14, 19, because I live, you will live also. Say amen if you agree with that. That's the reason you're gonna lift the cup. It's the reason you're gonna celebrate communion. I hope it brings greater meaning to you this morning as you look at these passages. Because the resurrection is proof of the obliteration of death. What terrifies people more than anything? It's not the empty bank account. It's not the bad health report. It's not the busted relationship. The freaking king of terror is death. And Jesus says, I've come to obliterate that so you don't have to be in fear of that. That's why you find Paul writing in 1 Corinthians 15, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Because death holds no fear whatsoever for a follower of Jesus this morning. No fear whatsoever because we belong to the conqueror of death. So I hand you over to the element of communion with this thought. It would be an act of breathtaking humility if God the Son did nothing more than descend from heaven and put on flesh just to surrender and deny himself alone. But he didn't stop there. 
clothed in humanity, he sits in an upper room. And the very night that he's betrayed by one of his own, he declares a promise. I'm making a new covenant. I make you a promise, and it's in my blood. I promise you, I'm coming back for you one day, that where I am, you may be also. Look with me on the screen one last time, Luke 22:20. 20. This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. See, that's why I say the words for you are the two most beautiful words in all the Bible. If you believe that God is for you and not against you, he's not waiting to smash you, he's waiting to save you. Jesus gave everything for you. If you're new to New Hope, the way we do communion is unique. We have our own tradition. And our tradition is that we always read from 1 Corinthians 11. And it's essentially the account of what Jesus did. It's very short. And then we encourage you when you're ready to come up to one of the tables in the front or two tables in the back. I have just a detail for you because this is the first communion service we've ever had at New Hope at this new building. And so here's a detail for you. You might be wondering, what do I do with those cups after I drink it? Okay, because there's no cup holder around you. Well, look on the screen and you're going to see an image that pops up. And the guys have this, uh, I'll wait for it. Maybe I'm waiting a moment. There it is. Okay. Look on the chair in front of you and you see the little loop. Okay, that little loop is for you to put the empty cup in. It was designed for that reason. Okay, you found that? Okay, got that. So let me read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul wrote this. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So in this auditorium, you're about to be a witness to the person on your left and the person on your right that you are a believer. If you lift the cup and you lift the bread, that's your witness. You're witnessing to his death until he comes. So we get this really strong warning in verse 27. It says this, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord, but a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he has to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This examining of yourself applies to believers and non-believers for this reason. If, if you're a believer, you already know where you're at and maybe you've got some things to do business with God on this morning before you come to the table. Maybe you've got some things to confess. This time for right now is for you to begin talking to the Father. But I wanna talk to those who may not yet be believers. Perhaps this is your first time in church this morning. I met people in the first service who were first time in church. I, I want you to hear it this way. Jesus came for you also, and you can have a brand new beginning this morning, new life in Jesus. All you have to do is quietly, you can do it right in your seat right now, and under your breath, just say, I, I believe, Jesus. Pray to Jesus and say, I believe. Will you take away my sin? I consider myself a believer now. Maybe you got it as a result of this morning. 
Maybe this made sense to you. I talked to people after the first service who said, I get it. That makes sense to me. Perhaps that's you. So I'm going to ask you if you're a believer in Christ right now, would you just bow your head in prayer, begin praying for yourself and praying for those who might not yet believe. Maybe praying for somebody who's watching online right now. Perhaps this is the first time they've heard this. But if you're not yet a believer, I'm going to ask you also to bow your head, close your eyes. And I'm just going to give you the words to repeat back to the Father if you want to do that. Heavenly Father, I believe that Jesus died for me. Just tell him that. I want my sins forgiven. Would you take them away? I don't want to be afraid of death. You can say those words. Put it in your own language. God hears you and he understands. Just be honest with him. I want a brand new beginning. Ultimately say this, I'm a sinner who needs a savior. God knows that language. If you happen to have prayed that just now, everybody keep their eyes closed. Would you slide your hand up? I want to pray for you. I'd love to pray for you this morning. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you for all the witnesses that are about to take place in this auditorium. As we lift the cup and we lift the bread, we're saying that we believe. So I pray that you'd be glorified in this moment and that you would bless what we're about to do. Put your blessing on us for having been here this morning. Look upon this time and use it for the glory of the King. We pray for that in his name. Amen. Let me just speak to you if you're one of those who prayed to receive Christ this morning. If you would, I'd love to talk to you after the service. And uh, come and let me know of your decision. And I have free Bibles I'd love to put in your hand and talk to you about the commitment that you made. I don't hesitate to do that. I'm going to ask if you uh, would stand with me. I got one more. It was on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he held up bread and he said, This will represent my body, which is broken for you. In the same meal, God the Son, who is Jesus the man, said there's a new covenant in my blood and my blood is shed for you. Father, I know that you're pleased with the witness. I know that you're pleased and the angels rejoice over the declaration that we're making, that we believe. I pray that this believing would reverberate that we would carry it with us to tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and not be ashamed to talk about what we believe with our friends and neighbors who may not know. But thank you for this moment in time. Thank you for letting us be here and be blessed by this reading of your word and understanding it better. I pray that you would send us out now with indeed not only your blessing on us but your grace with us. We ask for that in the mighty name of the one who came for us, our Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said. Amen. Have a great week, New Hope.